This is John Perrine with The Burning Word. I am so excited you're here to join us in this brand new study on the Song of Songs called Sex and the Search for Intimacy. This is episode two, and today I'm really excited to dive into this topic. I don't know many pastors, many sermon series, even many books on sex deal with, wrestle with the question we're gonna be exploring today. And the question is this, what does beauty have to do with sex and God? What role does beauty have to play in our relationships, in our culture's struggle, an almost obsession with beauty that takes place out there in the world, that takes place on our Instagram feeds, that's taking place across social media? But even more importantly, what does beauty have to do with our relationships, how we are drawn to each other, and what those relationships are trying to teach us and tell us about God? I am excited to dive in and look at the second chapter of the Song of Songs. So let's get started. All right, so here we are, episode two. Before we begin, I feel like it's helpful to just remember where we covered last week. I know I am going lots of places. We're exploring some nooks and crannies. The Songs of Songs is certainly not a book that you typically pick up. So just as a little bit of recap where we started last week. My argument is that culturally we are confused and we are hurting when it comes to sexuality. And so the need, the deep need is to turn to the Bible to recover the scripture's vision. And in recovering the scripture's vision to receive again this word from God, this word over our sexuality, that's not just prohibitions, that's not just restrictions, that's not just a list of do's and don'ts, but rather is a vision for what sexuality can be. And even as a vision for how sexuality is interconnected with God. Again, realizing that's a bold claim, but as we talked about the text last week, I noted a couple of concerns as you approach the Song of Songs, that it's going to be poetry, that you kind of have to figure out this Solomon piece. But I just want to remind you once more of these three layers that I mentioned, that as we approach the text today, what we're going to see is that there's this first layer of the text that's just poetry. You're just going to hear some good old-fashioned Hebrew poetry today. So that's going to be strange. It's going to take a little bit of work to uncover and to figure out what's going on. The poetry itself is quite powerful, it's beautiful, it's stirring when you sit with it. But underneath the poetry, there is this layer of human sexual relationship. And this episode particularly, I'm excited to explore what the layer of beauty has to do with our sexuality. Where is beauty working? Where is beauty beating underneath the longing we have for sex, the search we're on in sex for intimacy, and really where beauty is moving culturally for us today that's really stirring all of our imaginations around things like Instagram and social media and all the rest. Finally, underneath that human layer, I made the argument last week that there is this God layer, that the early church, the ancient rabbis, they used to read Song of Songs, and as they did, they were convinced that Song of Songs wasn't just teaching us about human sexual relationships, but that rather the Song of Songs was actually giving us This vision of how sex mirrored the human condition of longing and need for reconciliation and, even more importantly, reunion to our Creator, God. So as we talk about beauty, it's going to be impossible not to need to draw some theological connections between the beauty we see in each other and the beauty that we find in God. In fact, where is this beauty coming from that's so moving to us? Where is this beauty drawing us if we feel compelled by beauty, if there's something about beauty that grips our imaginations? And ultimately, what is God wanting to do with beauty? Does God have any sort of redemptive vision or plan for beauty in our own lives? Okay, that's just a bit of a preview, an anticipation of where we're going. To begin, I like to start with some cultural analysis, sort of stir the pot of where we're at right now. To do so, I want to go back to a really fascinating side project my wife, Jenna, did. Many of you know my wife, Jenna. She's trained as a therapist. She's currently in marketing. She is incredibly gifted and has a great vision 
for these kinds of conversations around scripture and theology, mental health and formation. And as she was wrestling in our seminary days, she was being trained as a therapist. She put together this workshop on body image. And I love the title of the workshop was Who Told You You Were Beautiful? Sort of playing on that phrase in the garden where God says to Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? But in order to do this body image workshop for women, both at the undergraduate level and at the seminary, Jenna was doing this digging into the background of social media. And what she discovered was this origin story for Facebook and YouTube. I I went and looked at this again as I was preparing for this series, is that in the year 2000, two engineers who were working in Silicon Valley, who both went to University of California, Berkeley, their names were James Hong and Jim Young. Two engineers created a website with a simple premise. It was called Hot or Not. Hot or Not. Users could upload photos to Hot or Not, and then everyone, although I'm sure you could guess, particularly young men, could vote on whether they thought that person whose photo was just uploaded was hot or not. Within months, the website had blown up. In fact, early 2000, I mean, the internet was nothing like it is today. And yet within a couple of months, millions of visitors had gone to the site so much so that it was named the top 10 marketing opportunities on the internet that year by, I want to say, Wired or whoever was judging this kind of thing early on in the internet's history. And so it got everybody's attention, but particularly, particularly two origin stories that are now quite literally covered up and sort of written out of the origins is one aspiring engineer by the name of Mark Zuckerberg, who, as he saw this site, hot or not, was inspired to create his own version for Harvard students. And if you've ever seen the social network, Dave Fincher's movie on Facebook's origins, he captures this. Um, Zuckerberg recently has refused to acknowledge hot or not. But if you go back to early interviews, Zuckerberg was clear. He saw hot or not. He saw the potential and thought if he could get people's photos up online, then there could be engagement, a dynamic of liking or responding to whether or not the photo was something that you approved of. I mean, think about it. Every time you click the like button, are you not making a vote on whether that image, that video, that tweet is hot or not? In fact, just consider briefly every social media platform that we have right now, every social media platform that has energy and momentum behind it. Think of Twitter, you think of Reddit, you think of Snapchat, you think of TikTok. Every one of those platforms has some version of hot or not. I mean, I was even shocked to discover I'd kind of known about Zuckerberg based off of social network and Jenna had done this research. But as I was looking into hot or not, I discovered similarly that the founders of YouTube, who were again, 20-something young men, were on the record back in 2006 saying that Hot or Not was actually their main inspiration for their website to create a hosting platform where, and this is their quote, we originally set out to make Hot or Not site for videos before developing it into a more inclusive concept. In fact, I was even more, is terrified the right word? I mean, maybe just not even surprised at this point. I was more disappointed to discover as I was looking into this again that the YouTube origin story involves one of the three co-founders saying that he was hoping to find the video of the Super Bowl where Janet Jackson's dress is pulled down by Justin Timberlake, that infamous event in the early 2000s, and was disappointed to find that there was no easy platform with which to look up this video. Where am I going with this? Why does this connect to the Song of Songs? Why would this depressing origin story of social media be the place where we start our conversation on sex and the search for intimacy? Well, my point is this. If you look at some of the wealthiest, most powerful companies in the world right now, 
social media platforms. What you will discover is this troubling pattern in which every one of these platforms was built by a young man, literally either in college or just out of college, whose energy and direction of their platform was built on this objectifying gaze in which their platform voted on whether you were hot or not. If you don't believe me, I'll just run through it really quick. Uh, this was another discovery of my wife. Jack Dorsey, co-founder of Twitter, was 23 when he began. Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snapchat, was 22. Kevin Systrom, founder of Instagram, was 26. Stephen Chen, one of the co-founders of YouTube, was 26. Jawad Karim, another co-founder of YouTube, was 25. And of course, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, was 19. It's like these guys just out of college who sense this draw to beauty figured out a way to monopolize, to capitalize on our whole culture's draw to make a judgment on whether someone is beautiful or not. We seem to have a problem. At least that's what Renee Englin, a psychologist at Northwestern, calls her analysis of our culture in her recent 2017 book titled Beauty Sick. Renee Englin says this, We've created a culture that tells women the most important thing they can be is beautiful. Then we pummel them with a standard of beauty they will never meet. After that, when they worry about beauty, we call them superficial. Or even worse, we dismiss their concerns altogether saying everyone is beautiful in their own way, admonishing them to accept themselves the way they are, end quote. Now, Englund is going to offer some really helpful suggestions. If you're interested, I would encourage you to check it out again. Her book's called Beauty Sick. But as I hear Englund's analysis of our culture, I'm drawn to return to my wife's workshops question, where she asked, who told you you were beautiful? Who told you you weren't beautiful. I mean, as I'm sure you could guess, so many people came into this workshop with heart-wrenching stories, just sensing they're not enough. In fact, my hunch would be you, because certainly my, my hunch for myself is in a culture that has objectified our gaze, in a culture where these platforms are incessantly telling us whether or not we are hot or not, all of us, all of us on some level feel this pressure, feel this sickness, as Renee Englin would say that we are not beautiful. And I think that that sort of hunger to be beautiful and yet the disassociative sense in which we're not beauty, that beauty is something out there that we can't seem to attain, but that we all deeply admire, that we're all deeply drawn to, that is precisely what social media is capitalizing on as we speak in their advertising. It's why you're drawn back again and again to return to Instagram, to hungrily consume the photos and images, to return to the movies, to return to any sort of fantasized version of life that can tell you it might get more beautiful one day, and yet simultaneously telling you you are not as beautiful as this. So what does this have to do with the Song of Songs? Well, I think chapter two in the Song of Songs is going to pick up this theme of beauty. And it's going to start a rich conversation that will continue throughout the whole Song of Songs. In fact, we're going to come back in episode four to this objectifying gaze of culture, and we're going to try to figure out what it looks like to redeem it. But for now, I just want to reflect on beauty with you according to the text. Here's where Song of Songs chapter two begins. Song of Songs chapter two, verse one. We get this opening verse that is deeply memorable. It's beautiful, and that's going to invite us in. This is the woman speaking. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Ooh, there, there's just something there, isn't it? I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, if you remember where we left off, at the end of chapter one, we found this culmination of desire where the woman, the lover, and the man, the beloved, came together in this union after this seeking and searching, even after a little bit of tension. And there in this union, they were together underneath the canopy of trees. They were on a bed of grass and they were declaring our love is greater than wine. So we're not really sure as chapter two begins where this couple will be. This is in all likelihood a new song, but there's generally this sense of loose connection between the songs. So 
As you're sitting with chapter two, the right question to ask is what's being kicked off here? What conversation is happening? And the first impulse we might have as we hear, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, is that the woman, after this reunion, this union between the beloved and the lover, the woman is feeling confident. She's she's proclaiming to the world her sense of herself. Yet, if we look more closely at this verse, a lot of Bible commentators will point out that there actually is more likely a deep sense of insecurity being conveyed through the intentional language of the poem. So the lover is going to say, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. The poetic image is of one flower among a field of flowers. And so you sense that the lover is yet again making a bid to the beloved where she's extending this question. She's starting to trust in light of the relationship with the beloved that she is in fact a flower, even a rose of Sharon. Yet the tentativeness, the insecurity is concerned that she's really just a rose. I again find this a refreshingly accessible psychological insight of the songs. Is there not a sense where any of us, no matter how confident you are in your own beauty, and I would guess not many of us would go so far as to say, I am a beautiful person. But even if you were somewhat confident, can you really with any sort of pride look out across what we now have access to through social media, just the sea of humanity, and proclaim yourself the preeminent rose that stands above all others? No, there's this sense with beauty where all of us know we're, we're a flower in the fields, maybe, if we can go that far. Yet notice, this is important. The songs is trying to teach us something as it invites us into relationship with the beloved. The beloved is going to respond quite strongly to this opening volley by saying, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Mm, So sit with that for a minute. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. The beloved is so clear here. He immediately cuts through the question, the tentativeness, and the insecurity of the lover by saying, listen, you are a flower, but when I look at your flower, it is as a lily among the brambles, and you stand out with this exquisite, all-encompassing, invitational draw of beauty to me. In my eyes, there is no other. That's what the beloved's saying, and I think Surely, this is what we all want. This is what we all long for. My wife and I had funny early conversations in our marriage. I'm sure some of you have had these conversations too, and I'm not trying to stir up debate here, but in the early days of our dating, as we were engaged, it was pretty common, still is pretty common, for couples to have celebrity comparisons, crushes, something like that. I mean, there's, there's kind of this early initial conversation that would have been popular among friends in school when you would talk about, well, that celebrity, oh, he's so attractive. Or that celebrity, yeah, well, she's obviously gorgeous. She's beautiful. Where my wife was coming from, it was really common that all the guys had the list of, well, that, that woman, she's particularly attractive. And in response, all the girls had equally the, well, that celebrity. I mean, he's really attractive. And yet, as we talked about it early on in our relationship, I think even sensing this impulse in the Song of Songs, there's this need in solidifying love to know that no other beauty is distracting you from the beauty you see in the beloved, from the beauty that's being acknowledged in the beloved. And so I think there actually is a bit of a challenge to us here. The question the beloved is, pressing back upon the lover is, I do not see anyone else's beauty when I look at you. You are the lily among brambles. There is no threat to your beauty. There is no threat to my powerful commitment and attraction to you. And so as my wife and I were working this out, we, we just got to this point where we said, I don't think it's actually appropriate any longer in light of my commitment to you to say anyone else is attractive. That's actually our frame. 
That's the lens through which we look at each other. No other beauty is going to entice me when I see your beauty. Now, for some of you, as you hear that, your response to me may be, well, what are you trying to say? I mean, this is a response I have heard before. People's pushback being, are you saying that celebrities are not attractive? Are you saying that there aren't beautiful people out there on Instagram, on wherever else you're looking at beautiful people? I think this is actually a really important point, and it highlights that culturally, we don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about beauty, or at least we are not very reflective on beauty. Our beauty is superficial and skin deep. So part of what we're trying to do then in this episode, by drawing our attention to beauty, is to ask, who told us what beauty is? Who's told us who is or is not beautiful? I'm really not trying to be glib about this. I think this is deeply theologically serious stuff that needs to be reflected on. So I want to talk about a theory of aesthetics, theory of beauty. But before I do, I just want to walk you through where this conversation goes in Song of Songs 2, if you're following, in light of the beloved's commitment, in light of the beloved's focus, in light of his affirmation of beauty. He sees the lover as beautiful. He commits to her beauty as her beloved. She will then respond with a similar affirmation. In fact, I want to call this the dance of beauty. As he sees and commits to her beauty, she sees and responds to his beauty. She's going to say in verse 3, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so that was a big sweep of scripture. What the woman is really getting at is as this beauty is starting to draw each other in, she's going to delight in his distinctiveness. She's going to call him this apple tree among the trees of the forest. So as he distinguishes her, she distinguishes him, probably drawing out this imagery, evocative sexual imagery of his fruit and flavor and sensation that she can taste in. I mean, this is all very Song of Songs language. I know this is why most of us don't end up reading this book very often. She then is going to describe how he brings her in, and there, in this union, there is this deep delight and embrace. This is what you constantly find in the Song of Songs. The lover and the beloved are going to crash into each other like a wave. Yes, that was just a slightly unintentional Dave Matthews reference. But as they crash, the point is that there's this intensity to love. You might have caught her say she needs to be sustained. Uh, This is sort of like an exhaustive but all-encompassing activity to be crashed into the beauty of another. And yet as she is both vulnerable in the pouring out her energy into this love, she is also protected by him. And so she warns, she warns the witness, she warns the chorus of daughters of Jerusalem that because there is so much at stake here in this commitment and focus on each other, that it is good and right to not stir up or awaken love until it's ready. There's so much going on here in this crash of beauty that I think we need to step back and ask what is beauty? And where is beauty coming from? So for some reason, this is one of those philosophy questions that just grips my imagination. This is one of those things that if you don't think about it, you just take for granted. Oh, it's beautiful. That's not beautiful. But of course, there are people who have thought about it. This is where philosophy is both exciting and exhausting. And as you push deeper in, you start to you start to get to this tension in the question of beauty between subjectivity and objectivity, right? That 
there seems to be this sense in which culturally we all have a slightly shared assumption that we can all generally acknowledge this is where celebrities and models and social media, for lack of a better (laughs) focus, comes from, that we all generally sense what beauty is. But of course, when you tunnel down into beauty itself, how is beauty defined? What actually defines beauty for you? Who's telling you what beauty is? And who's defining beauty culturally? Who's the gatekeeper? Who, who says that is in with beauty or that is out? As philosophers have wrestled with this, there are four characteristics of beauty that generally guide this study of aesthetics, if you look into it. Four characteristics are this. First, symmetry and proportion tends to guide beauty. So if you think about it, a face actually has symmetry. That tends to be one of the signs if you were to analyze the bone makeup of people who are selected as models. They tend to have symmetrical faces. And then proportion, of course, as well. This is why we have a general sense, although it's worth pointing out that it changes all the time. It's, there's no firm totally set standard, but proportionality in a person's body is often what we find attractive if they are a proportional weight, if they are muscular, proportioned with their slimness and low body fat content, uh, all the way up to, this of course doesn't just refer to people's beauty, Uh, symmetry and proportion is what guides our draw towards a tree or a flower that has symmetry, proportionality, This is what draws our sense of beauty to architecture that is stunning. If you just see a house and you go, wow, that is beautiful. It tends to be an architect who has captured symmetry and proportionality in the angles and shapes of a home. The the second characteristic that works with the first is coherence and order. So if symmetry and proportionality are starting to indicate, if you really think about it, a sense of relatedness, that something that's symmetrical is proportional in relation to itself, all right, if you're tracking with that sort of abstraction, coherence and order also give this direction to beauty. So for me, this is as simple as picturing a kitchen. In a kitchen, you walk into a kitchen, one of the things that will immediately strike you about a beautiful kitchen is one in which there is design, there is symmetry, there is proportion, but then there is a sense of coherence and order. Everything is put away, except for the appliances, which are probably ordered in an intentional manner. And you walk into the space and you just sense, if I needed to cook a meal, everything is prepared and ready for where I need it to be. There is coherence and order to what is taking place in this room. Uh, Versus if you walk into a messy kitchen, into a kitchen that's just been blown up, food's everywhere, uh, appliances are strewn all over the place, or Right now, we have little kids. You walk into a baby's room and the toys are just everywhere. There's this sense of chaos, for lack of a better word. There's this sense of disproportionate lack of coherence. And so in those spaces, part of our sense, our aesthetic sense, is that something is out of order. It is chaotic. Um, This is going to bring us to the third characteristic of beauty, which aesthetics often note is some kind of interplay and relatedness. So particularly in paintings or in artwork or even in the coherence of themes in, let's say, musicals or movies. Notice how whenever we find something to have an intentional interplay or relatedness, that there's this deep draw of, wow, that is beautiful. When you see one theme of suffering connect with a theme of redemption in a story, in a novel, in a character arc. When you see a sense of relatedness between colors, where instead of colors being just mishmashed, there's instead of colors just being mishmashed, there's this sense of connectedness across a palette, a coherence and order. You're tracking with how these are all sort of connecting in the interplay of color dynamics spread across the canvas. This is how beauty starts to form in our imagination. This is what's guiding our sense of beauty. Think of it. This is what's guiding our sense of beauty, that there's symmetry and proportion. There's coherence and order. There's interplay and relatedness. I think if you tracked anything you find to be beautiful, you could see those three characteristics, except, of course, for the final characteristic, which you maybe have started to anticipate at this point. And that fourth characteristic, as many aesthetic theorizers note, 
is interestingly that while we sense beauty holds within it the need for symmetry, proportion, quarter, coherence, and order, interplay, and relatedness, what surprises us is that beauty can often sometimes involve an inherent clash that is then resolved in harmony. So if you're wondering why sometimes, sometimes particularly in higher levels of art, there's actually this sense of non-beauty, this almost chaotic clash. In fact, this jarringness of notes. I think about minor chords, how beautiful minor chords are, even though they involve a note that is minored, that is lower than uh, a full resolve note would be in a major chord. Or I think about just the intrusion of grief, the disruption of harmony that moves us in most movies. Or I think particularly of Jackson Pollock, I, as a teenager, would never have understood the aesthetic inside of Jackson Pollock. I would have looked at it and said, that's ridiculous. Anybody could make a smattering painting like Pollock's. And yet, if you really stare at a Pollock painting, you start to sense it's actually in the clash. It's in the intentional clash of colors, the intentional framing which Pollock offers to the randomness of paint splattering on a canvas that draws you in to the harmony, the fusion, even the strange sense of meaning if you sit and stare at a Pollock painting, which is part of why Pollock's art was so celebrated in the 20th century. So I am actually going somewhere with this, and that is towards what several theologians across the history of the church have proclaimed. And this really surprised me when I first heard it. Again, I don't hear about it a lot, and so I hope, I hope this isn't just old news for you. I hope this is actually an insight of revelation. The church has heard this aesthetic theory. In fact, many theologians were actually the ones who helped develop this sense of aesthetic theory. And you can tell it comes from the theologians because when you really sit with those four characteristics, what they're describing is a God of creation who offered all beauty that creation now knows to that which God made. One of the best articulators of a theology of beauty is actually the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards. Now, Edwards is complicated. Edwards is complicated because his Puritan theology is often off-putting. There's been a recent controversy. If you get into evangelical sub-controversies, I'm not always connected to all of them, but I am aware of this one, that John Piper, who is a very big fan of Jonathan Edwards, recently made controversial remarks about not really being all that perturbed by the fact that Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. I mean, this brings us into a whole subject. I just want to acknowledge I'm aware of this. There's stuff going on here with any theologian that requires careful formulation, humility, and intentionality in asking what is being offered by this theologian and how we're receiving the theologian's work. But Here's why I turn to Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, coming in the early 17th century, was getting all of this scientific insight. I mean, he was right after Isaac Newton. The turn to the Enlightenment had just begun. Edwards himself would be an early scientific mind. He writes an infamous treatise on spiders. I'm sure some of you really care about Jonathan Edwards, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But what's fascinating about Edwards is that as he's drawn to the sciences, what the science is doing is just paying attention to creation, right? Science is in and of its science in and of itself is a very Christian theological exercise and being deeply attuned to the created order, to the coherence, to the symmetry and proportionality of the world that was made by a God who Christians proclaim to be ordered and proportional and have symmetry and coherence in his being. And as Edwards is paying attention in this Enlightenment day, he has a particularly astute sense that within creation is this emanating source of beauty when you pay close enough attention. And when you begin to see this beauty, you are forced to ask, when you begin to see this beauty, you are forced to ask, where does this beauty come from? So Jonathan Edwards has this incredible quote that captures a theology of beauty when he says, God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty from whom all is perfectly derived and on whom all is most absolutely 
and perfectly dependent. Much more than the sun is the fountain and summary comprehension of all the light and brightness of the day. So what Edwards is saying is that God is actually the source of all beauty. Basically, if you're tracking with Edwards, if you're tracking with me, what you begin to hear in creation, in science itself, is that when you look out at this world and you see beauty, beauty is simply a lens through which the creator is shining light to get your attention to himself. Another way that Jonathan Edwards puts it is that all beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of the being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. You're tracking with the profoundness of this, and yet also just the practical, on-the-ground earthiness of this. What Edwards is daring to say, what Edwards is daring to say, what I'm daring to say, what I think the Song of Songs is also daring to say is that God is the source of all beauty on this creation. So track with me then. If God is the source of beauty, if he's like light from which anytime we see beauty, that beauty is but a beam of light coming from the creator, from the source, from the one who himself is the container of all proportionality, of all order, of all coherence, of all symmetry, of all interrelatedness, of all harmony, of ultimately the holder of all clashes that then produces and relates in the shalom and in the wholeness of God himself. If that's the case, then when I see beauty here on earth, literally beauty in architecture, beauty in art, beauty in a song, beauty in a movie, beauty in a person, what's happening is that the beam of God's beauty has come through his creation. And the thing that draws me to that beauty, the reason why that beauty has gripped me, the reason why the beauty is drawing me in is that I am getting a glimpse of the glory and the brightness of God through his created being. That has some huge implications. It has some huge implications. First, has huge implications for love. Why is love so important to us? For those who have the privilege of being married right now, for those who are pursuing marriage, I'm just speaking to you for a second. I want to get off us married folk because there's a lot of attention that's often given to us, but I don't think we take seriously enough the fact that we have married an image bearer who is emanating the brightness and glory of God to us through their beauty. The reason why you were attracted to your spouse in the first place is because you were catching glimpses of the divine. Oh, that, that just moves me and it gets me excited. I, I've seen it. I've seen this take place. I've seen it in my wife that within her, I saw and have seen at her best moments, at her most joyous laughter-laden, wonderfully at peace within herself, deeply artistic, talented, gifted. I'm seeing the glory of God emanating through that beauty. That's why I'm drawn to it. That's why I'm attracted to it. Similarly, she has seen at my best when I am there, when I'm present, when my fullness of person is showing up in peace and joy and love, she is getting these glimpses, these glimpses into the very brightness and glory of God. It's stunning. It's breathtaking. It's why marriage has so much potential to be a source of worship of God if we can see that the beauty in our spouse is not just for us to consume, but is actually a conduit, a a sign that's pointing us to the God who is worthy of our worship. But let's get off marriage. When we, in culture, find ourselves drawn to art or beauty in general, even drawn in superficial or shallow beauty, perhaps through Instagram, through movies, through celebrities, but even more deeply when we're moved by beauty, whether it's moved by a song, whether it's moved by a piece of art, whether it's moved by a novel as you're reading it, what's actually taking place is that some hint, some 
echo, some refrain of God is speaking to us through the art that we are encountering. That is how bold of a claim I believe Edwards and the scriptures are making when it comes to beauty. So let me come back then to the Song of Songs. And as we come back to the Song of Songs, I'm struck that part of the role of the beloved is to see, to name, and then draw us through beauty. So if you look at verse 8, I'm going to read another stretch of the songs here. This is going to be Song of Songs 2, verses 8 to 15. You're going to find this second sweep of a song that is all going to come from the perspective of the lover, and yet she's going to quote at one point the words of the beloved. You'll track with it. I just want you to notice the way in which beauty is drawing and enticing deeper intimacy and connection both to each other. This is on the human plane of sexual relationship, sexual intimacy, and yet on a deeper spiritual plane, how this is the beloved wooing and drawing us through seeing and naming our beauty back to the beauty of God. Here's the lover in verse 8. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. This is all very poetic. It's all very beautiful. It's all very intimate. Yet, if you can track with the flow of where this poetry is taking us, the woman sees her beloved coming to her. Once again, she sees him as beautiful. He's bounding. He's leaping over mountains and hills. I love the pursuit of the beloved. The beloved is always pursuing the lover. And yet, when he shows up, he's going to see her first. Isn't that kind of interesting? He's going to look and gaze upon her through the windows, through the lattice, and clearly he sees her beauty because the first thing he's going to say to her is, Arise, my love, my beautiful one. But notice he has an invitation. He says, Come away, come with me. The beloved is drawn to the lover's beauty, and yet he beckons her to come with him, in some ways relying on his beauty to draw and allure her out of the safety, of the comfort, maybe the fear and insecurity of her home. And yet, when you listen to the words he says to beckon her out to union with himself, and again, I, I know I'm using very theologically laden language, even as this has very sexual reference in its metaphor in terms of what relationships actually look like. What the beloved is doing is saying the time, the timing has come so that the beauty of the earth, he's going to talk about flowers appearing, the voice of the turtle dove, the fig tree ripening, that beauty that's pouring out of the earth is actually beckoning the lover to come be in union once more with the beloved. It's like all of beauty is there as the container to beckon intimacy and union into itself, to beckon the lover to come and be united with her beloved. What I hear in this song that I think is theologically significant is that beauty is meant to be used by God and is meant to be used in human relationship as a means to draw us in to union and intimacy with each other, that we otherwise would be too hesitant, too fearful, or too self-protecting 
to engage. That's part of what beauty's doing. God is using beauty in your life to continually disrupt your sense of disappointment, your sense of self-satisfaction. I know this is so true for myself. I find myself stuck or struggling and then some piece of beauty grips me. Have you ever noticed this? Maybe it's a movie sometimes for me. Other times it's a story. It's a piece of poetry. But what's happening with beauty is it's, it's stirring us back into the search. Beauty is used by God to pull us back into the search for intimacy, both with each other and the search for intimacy with God. If that's true, then beauty is going to play a pivotal role in your relationship with your beloved here on a human plane, but an even more profound and pivotal role in your relationship to God. That may be a thought that requires some deeper reflection. How is beauty playing itself out across your life? How are you intentionally engaging in beauty? Where are you cultivating beauty so that you know when it comes to beauty that God is there waiting and beckoning you? But if beauty is a means to draw us to God, if beauty is a way that we can be drawn to each other, clearly this is what happens in attraction, in dating, in engagements. This is how any form of attraction takes place. Beauty draws us. This is part of the function and power of beauty. It's a beckoning force through creation. The clear and obvious danger, if we begin with social media, is that it's easy for that form, that power of beauty to become distorted, disrupted, or even just superficial and cheap. My fear is that as we have been given more and more access to beauty, particularly through our phones, particularly through the internet, particularly through entertainment, what begins to happen is we start getting more and more satisfied on cheap and superficial forms of beauty, and we begin to lose track of the deeper sense of beauty, those deeper forms of coherence and proportionality and relatedness that particularly are to be found in real people, the depth of people, not just the skin-deep personas, but the sense of goodness and joy and character that is formed underneath the surface of our skins. That we have allowed Hollywood, Silicon Valley, marketing and advertising firms to tell us what beauty is. And we have stopped seeing beauty as a sign pointing us beyond itself, but instead are just consuming beauty as we find it, as a means to sort of satiate and distract our souls. There's this illustration from the movie Ratatouille. Do you remember that one? Ratatouille is fun, early days, Disney Pixar. But I, I love in Ratatouille, the rat's name is Remy. He loves food. He loves good food, loves flavor. He sort of stands out in his community because he's so committed to the possibilities and potential of flavor and food that can offer this joy and delight. He's the ultimate Frenchman of exquisite taste. But essentially, I mean, if you think about it, Remy loves beauty. That's what is really drawing Remy to food. It's the beauty of food. But his challenge is that he lives in this community of rats that are content instead to eat garbage. In one of my favorite scenes, Remy is approached by his friend, maybe it's his brother, Emile. And as Emile approaches, he's holding what looks like a diaper in his hand. And Remy asks him, what is that? as Emile takes a bite of it, to which Emile responds, I don't really know. Remy incredulously is then going to say, you don't know, and you're eating it, to which Emile is going to say, you know, when you muscle your way past the gag reflex, all kinds of food possibilities open up. I think for as silly as an illustration as that might be, I think this is our dilemma when it comes to beauty. We have found ourselves content to eat the superficialities, in essence, the garbage of beauty, content to consume whatever 
social media tells us is hot, whatever we find immediately attractive, valuable, or desirable. And in doing so, we've begun to focus on beauty that is skin deep, that delivers only quick hits of pleasure, while our perceptions of ourselves and of each other gets more and more distorted by the garbage that we've been eating until I get to the point that I can't tell if my spouse is really attractive or if I'm really attractive to my spouse, if my friends are all that attractive or not that attractive, if my life is really attractive or not that attractive, and even on some level, if God is that attractive or not attractive to my being. And as we consume the superficialities of the garbage that is sitting there in front of us, we're left with this question asked by God to us, who told you you weren't beautiful? So this episode, I'm tempted to keep going, but I want to stop here. I want to pause at this point in our reflection on beauty, because I think this conversation needs to be picked back up as love continues to unfurl in the Song of Songs. But for now, for now, I close this episode with the beautiful finale to chapter two in the Song of Songs. As the beloved woos the lover with the beauty of creation, she will be drawn out of her safety, drawn out of her comfort, drawn out of herself, and she will come to be once more with her beloved, who is beautiful to her and in his beauty, who can see and name and bless the beauty she herself has. And out of that culmination, verses 16 to 17 will say this, My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. He's there with her together, fully one. And she'll close until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. The Song of Songs is trying to reorient us. It's trying to teach us that there's more to beauty than meets the eye. Beauty is here to beckon us back to the beloved. So, as you go, may your eyes begin to see the beauty of the beloved. May you begin to hear the voice of the beloved telling you once more the beauty that is within you. And as you turn to look towards the beauty of the beloved, may you begin to rightly see all of the other beauty that is around you, pointing you back to the source of all glory and brightness that is our God. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.